0: Welcome, welcome.
2: It's fat mascara time. I'm Jess. I'm Jen. We're back. We're back.
0: It's so nice to be back in the We're virtual. Back in studio. The we had a little time off. You feeling we'll refreshed? Yeah, you know, we'll talk about that. Yes, I'm feeling refreshed. Okay. Let's talk about that next week when okay. it's just you and me. You and me. I don't want to take away time from, from Terry's interview to be talking about us. Okay. we to talk about Terry. Talk,
2: okay, we'll catch up later. Let's catch up later. Let's.
0: Talk about Terry. I'm so happy she's here. This is a major guest. Major. This is a really great interview. She's the founder of... She's a makeup artist, first of all, Terry Bryant. She's the founder of Guide Beauty, which we have talked about on the podcast. Probably, I was trying to think about this when it first came up, maybe, but we talked about it before, but she brought on Selma Blair as the chief creative officer of Guide Beauty, and it, it made a lot of noise in the industry. But Terry herself is such a powerhouse. We'll share the story of how losing her dexterity Um, because of Parkinson's disease, inspired her to create this brand. And like I said, now she and Selma Blair, who revealed her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis in 2018, are working to change the game in the beauty industry and developing a culture of broader inclusion through universal design, which like I thought I knew what it was, but she does such a good job of explaining it and educating. She is like a teacher's teacher kind of person. And this is a really great interview. So we hope you love Terry as much as we do. And here is Terry Bryant.
2: So, Terry, how did you get interested in beauty? And you know, Tell us about your start as a makeup artist.
1: Sure. So I guess I should credit my mom. Uh, probably a lot of makeup artists do because she used to bring me to the makeup counter with her when I was a little girl. You know, back in the day when they were only the legacy brands and you only got to see a collection four times a year. And so we would go to the mm-hmm. Chanel counter and we would visit Cesar. And Cesar, four times a year, spring, summer, fall, winter, which mm-hmm. sort of just, you know, celebrate my mom and we would leave the department store and I would play in makeup. And I just loved the whole experience. And I think, you know, kind of was a smitten kitten from day one.
2: I love that smitten kitten. So you left the store as a smitten kitten with all your mom's products, four seasons a year. And then what drove you to want to become a makeup artist?
1: I mean, I used to, I mean, I played with her makeup for hours on end. I mean, she told me not to, and I said, I probably wouldn't. And then obviously... I did. Uh, but I, I was a I was an awkward, you know, I always say I was an awkward kid. And then I realized I'm actually just still an awkward adult. I just don't care anymore. But as a kid, I, I sort of didn't quite know how to connect with people. So I would sit by myself for hours and play with makeup. It was just my form of artistry, right? Like instead of a canvas where you can only paint it once and you know now I got to get a new canvas if it's acrylics or water paints, you know, my canvas was my face. So it, it lent itself to playing for hours. I could Create a look. I could wash it off. I could go, you know, do the process over and over again. And I loved it. And that was sort of my a little creative outlet and my little safe space. And two things kind of happened for me in that process. One is, as an awkward kid, part of the reason I was awkward is because I wasn't very confident and I wanted to be a lot of things I wasn't. And in the process of sort of playing with makeup, every time I would create something, whether it's like, I'm going to make my eyes look big and winged, I'm going to create these chiseled cheeks, I'm going to do like, oh, whatever look I was creating or whatever feature I was celebrating, there was kind of this sort of understanding that started to sort of emerge which is oh, well, if I love the look I'm creating I should really love the canvas I'm creating it on and so it was such a positive empowering experience I was like oh i want to share that and then people started to sit in my chair and I started to do makeup and I, I think most makeup artists would sort of tell you they'd be hard-pressed to find somebody you kind of couldn't connect with when somebody's in your makeup chair so I kind of I learned how to connect with people so I sort of had two moments one which was I was so thrilled that I was connecting, but also I was so passionate about what I was doing. And when people kept saying, I wish I could do this for myself, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to get into makeup artistry. I know how to do this. I understand the mechanics. I'm going to show you. And so I kind of just knew that that was going to be my path.
2: I love that. What were some of your favorite jobs as a makeup artist or like, you know, like just most memorable jobs, even if it wasn't your favorite?
1: It's a good way to put it. You know, I I kind of feel like it's hard to only pick one because of had its purpose and had its Mm -hmm. moment. So, you know, like my first job was behind a Chanel counter. One is because I knew I couldn't afford the makeup without working behind the counter. Uh, So I did that. But, you know, I got the job also because that makeup artist, Cesar, who used to celebrate my mom four times a year, he helped me get my first job when I got to college working behind the counter. So that was an incredible experience. Christian Dior gave me the best mentor I've ever had in my life. Smashbox gave me the best friendships I've ever had in my life and mm-hmm. community, and they also allowed me to sort of do both my loves in a, in a way that I couldn't do with most makeup companies, right? Because they had the studio setting so I could continue with artistry and develop the education program. So, you know, all of them sort of had their purpose and meaning, I think, and created who I am today.
2: You said you're using this word that I find really nice. You said like this makeup artist Cesar celebrated your mom four times a year. Is that the word you're it, using?
1: It is. It is. I feel passionate that that is what, I mean, there's two forms of artistry, right? Well, there's probably more, but I kind of always look at makeup artistry in two two ways. One is sort of celebratory and one's transformation. And transformation, which I understand that transformation could be a transformation in how you see, you see yourself, but in terms of the actual techniques you use, I feel like transformation is very often this sort of let's let's play. It's this world of pretend. I want it, it's, you know, it's costume. It's, it's, uh, make-believe land, right? Like sort of creating something that you're not. But uh, celebration is sort of looking at somebody's features and saying, let's celebrate them. I want you. I want, I want. want them to stand out. I want to make it about you and I want you to see the beauty that's there in a way that you may not have otherwise. So I just feel like that's, I don't know, it's just my favorite form of makeup artistry. And I think that that's uh, what most of us want out of our makeup on most days. And it lifts you. It's kind of, again, it's the sort of, it's how we put ourselves together. It's how we walk out into the world. And I think sometimes... People who haven't had the joy of being able to work in artistry that way or makeup artistry that way don't realize what it can do when you just sort of just do a little something to make your eyes just sort of sing. And you're like, oh, yeah, I do feel a little better about myself today. So I That's think celebratory makeup is, is uh, yeah, it's just a, the way that I'd love most people to experience uh, the world of makeup.
0: You were lucky enough, I think lucky, to have this education part of your career. You worked with brands where... People come in, they want to be either transformed or celebrated, but they want to know how. So they need your help to know how that whole education aspect of it. Would you hear in your career like similar questions over and over again as far as education? Like, is are we not doing something well? I'm sure you were doing it well, but like, what do people keep asking?
1: Oh, no, I don't think I was doing it well. <laughs> I think I was doing it maybe <laughs> well enough. No, I, I mean, I was really passionate about it. I was so sure because for some reason, you know, makeup. You know, it, it's a skill set. Makeup artistry, like any form of yeah. artistry, it's a skill set. And for some reason, in a certain sense, it came naturally to me. You still have to hone and build on that skill set. But the basics, somehow, I just used to be able to sort of look at your face, figure out how I want to celebrate it, and then my arm and my hand were just this very direct extension of my mind's eye, and I could just sort of make it happen. But I don't think most people have that experience, no. right? Yes. <laughs> and it's and so I just thought, well, if I can do it. And I could teach it to you, then you should be go home, be able to go home and do the same thing. What I was missing is it's one thing to understand the steps and techniques that it takes to get from point A to point B, but it's very different to go home and then have to execute it. I mean, I used to, I used to talk about years ago, we had this, do you remember Bob Ross? Mm-hmm. of course okay so big hair so we had a Bob happy Ross. trees happy trees yeah. yes okay so I can't create happy trees I create sad little pathetic bushes they do I like I can't <laughs> I cannot do it and Bob Ross was brilliant at telling you that like you use this brush this is the color this is the technique you stipple here you dot here and I was like I get what you're saying I think I'm doing it but my photo picture doesn't look like your painting, right? My painting and your mm-hmm. painting look nothing alike. I just couldn't execute, even though I understood what he was saying. And I think that makeup artistry is the same. You know, there's just certain techniques that are inherently more challenging to to do. And I think we we have made people feel like they should just pick up the brush, whatever it is in their hand, and, and just make it happen. And that's not how it yeah. works.
0: Uh, yeah. That's you, a really good point. You said that you thought of your hand as like this extension of your mind, which is fascinating because I think a lot of people don't have that skill set but I also know it's a big part of your story and then that changed for you as you had your career when your hands kind of weren't doing what your mind wanted anymore
1: can you tell us about that story yeah sure so you know I I always think there's probably moments that happened before this but I have a very distinct memory that you know I was on set I was doing makeup for somebody who had it was a look it was like fresh clean pretty super simple look you could knock out 20 minutes you know
0: you could knock out in 20 minutes, right, but so, yes, go on. Right, okay, so I
1: could knock out. At the time, I could knock out. And it was with a model I'd worked with before and a crew I'd worked with before. And so it should have been easy, easy breezy. And like 20 minutes passed, 30 minutes. I'm now heading into 40 minutes. And I just kept thinking, something feels odd here. Like, I just couldn't do it quite right. Like, I didn't have the same level of precision. I just kept saying, at first in my head, like, there just felt like a little disconnect and at some point, mm-hmm. I knew it was coming eventually. The, the model and in a nice way was like, girl, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, why? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. But I got through the day, we, we wrapped it up, it was all fine. And I thought, well, all right, that was terrible, but let's ignore that. <laughs> so so, so mm-hmm. and I did for a while, but that little what I just kept describing as a disconnect, which was just enough of a disconnect that it was making me hard to execute on the level of a prof- professional makeup artist started to just progress and progress and progress. And I started to find myself sort of pivoting a little in my career. Like if you called me for fashion week, I'd be like, oh no, I'm not doing that because I sort of, without knowing what was going on, I thought it's going to be fast paced. I'm going to have to knock out a lot of looks real quick, but maybe if it's a one day shoot, a simple look, I'll take that one. And I started doing more education and I just was sort of changing my career path a little bit, not knowing what was happening. You know, over the years, other symptoms started to show. So the disconnected my hand all of a sudden started to present as like stiffness and pain in my shoulders and all these weird things were happening. And I was going to doctors over the years and they're like, well, you're just getting older. And I was like, well, that's a terrible thing to say to me, but okay. And they're, yeah. and so you, you just, you keep thinking something's wrong, but you almost want to take somebody's when they, at their word, when they say there's nothing wrong with you, just, you know, drink more water, have some vitamins, don't have cocktail hour. None of those things I was going to do. Right. So like <laughs> none, none, of it, it but, but it progressed at some point it progressed far enough that I was like, this is insane. Like there has to be an answer. And, you know, long story short nor- or shorter at some point I finally got in front of the right person who's, who recognized probably within two minutes of meeting me that I had Parkinson's and said, I, you know, I can't confirm it, but I'm almost positive. And I said, well, if you were a neurologist, I said, if you were a betting man, one to 10, how sure are you? He said, I'll give it a nine. I was like, all right, well, that's... <sighs> it's pretty stinking sure. I'm going to go, let's go with Mm -hmm. Parkinson's. And obviously you go through all the steps and you take all the tests and, you know, obviously it was confirmed that that was, that was the issue. And I was always a left-handed makeup artist and that's where my symptoms were presenting. And, you know, for so long, I didn't know what was going on that at least at that point, I was like, all right, well, at least I'm not nuts. At least I know what's happening now and maybe I can solve for it.
0: Yeah. I was, it's funny. I was going to ask you if you experienced like an ableism as you, in your career as a makeup artist or dismissiveness because of your skill set changing as a makeup artist but hold on we got to go back to the medical communities ableism and dismissiveness like <laughs> okay. before we get into that like how many years are we talking about where like you know it's ha- you know something's different but they're not hearing you
1: I mean it was a slow progression my my sort of symptoms still are fairly slow but I'm going to say Sort of light dipping my toes in the water asking if something was wrong was probably 10 years before I got a diagnosis. And then... Yeah.
2: So 10 years of, like, doctor hopping and 10 years of...
1: Yeah, five years of, like, of of going to people saying... Real experts would say things like, you know, you're just not in good enough shape and you should go stretch more and you should exercise. And I was like, all right, I'll try all these things. But, yeah, it was a long time. I think people can be very quickly dismissive. I wasn't... Not that young onset Parkinson's doesn't happen, but... I didn't. I didn't match the demo for them. They expected mm-hmm. me to be older. They expected a shaky hand, which at the, that time I didn't have any of that. I just kept saying, "There's a disconnect in my hand. I feel like my fingers aren't moving sort of independently from up each other the way they used to." I can't perform makeup artistry with the same precision. Those are big for me, and they're like, "Those don't sound like anything, right?" They didn't. They didn't identify those as being big enough issues to really pursue. And then when I started getting pain in my shoulders, I was like, so you, you got to listen to that. This is pain, I'm in yeah. pain. and pain. They're like, well, yeah. again, that's just because you, you know, probably need a chiropractor. You probably need a physical therapist. You probably need to exercise more. So they just weren't hearing it. And so I think it happens a lot.
0: I feel like I'm guilty of that too. As you're talking about like what Parkinson's looked like or whatever, I'm thinking, what does a makeup artist look like? Would I picture someone who's starting a beauty brand and being a makeup artist to be someone who has Parkinson's? probably my brain wouldn't have gone there. And here you are like defying my stereotype and my expectation, which is pretty cool. It's good to remember that like people do that all the time and you're one of them. So tell us about the, tell us about how, like it's, you're dealing with a big health condition, but you're still working. Were you, were did you experience like changes to your career because of this?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I certainly was my, my career was shifting for a long time, right? Like I had been Running parallel paths my career. I was doing the makeup artistry and the education. So I I was like leaning more into the education, but then I was also going on like QVC and HSN. And by the time I got my diagnosis, I mean, I found myself kind of trying to play the game a little bit, thinking if anybody finds out, I'm not going to have a job anymore. Who's going to hire the makeup artist with Parkinson's, right? Like, so I would say things like, it's cold in here today.
2: But can you, can you know, I I think that's important for you to like explain a little bit more. Like you said, who's going to hire the makeup artist with Parkinson's? Like, yeah, there's the obvious, like, things that you're suggesting, but I'd love you to like explain that a little bit more. What yeah, were you I mean, afraid of?
1: I was afraid that the moment that I shared, well, certainly for what I was doing, like at that point I was doing also a lot of on air work. I was presenting for brands on broadcast retail. And so even though I could, I could pull it off at that time, I think my thought was the minute. They know I'm not a long-term plan for them because they're going to think that, you know, it could be tomorrow that she can't hold the brush in her hand. She can't get the eyeliner on the model's face. So mm-hmm. and I'm, not, I'm not a good investment for, for a company mm-hmm. at that point. And so I was scared to say anything, especially when I didn't know what was going on. But then once I did know what was going on, I was like, all right, well, yeah, I don't know which one, in some ways, which one's worse, which one's better. The good part about getting the diagnosis is I felt like I had an opportunity to take control over it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I always say that Guy Beauty and Way was born the day I got my diagnosis. Like I, like I'm, I almost ran home with tunnel vision thinking, well you know, now I know what's going on. Maybe I can actually solve for this because I now know more about Parkinson's than I ever thought I was going to know in my lifetime. And it's, you know, people know what they're exposed to. And, you know, I think we, we, see, we see examples which happen, but everybody's sort of journey is different. We're all more or less able throughout our lives in many different ways. And I just was like, I'm just going to work in the moment. I know where I'm at today. So let me see if I can solve for what's happening today. And I started to work on prototypes to keep myself in the, in the game.
2: And really, like, what was that gap of time between your diagnosis and Guide Beauty and, and thinking about the line?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it started in some ways a little bit selfishly. Like, I came, went, came home from that doctor's appointment. I was like, all right, pulled out my makeup kit. I pulled out my, my husband's toolkit. And I was like, I understand the mechanics of good artistry. I, I sort of, like, I felt... At the time, certainly, the biggest things for me was I just intuitively understood that grip was becoming an issue, stability was becoming an issue. So I thought, well, maybe I could start building these things into the tools. So I was breaking things apart, rebuilding. At some point, I had, at the time, it looked like a little finger puppet, and it had one of those little mascara balls on it. And I was resting it against my cheek and kind of blinking into it. And I looked at my husband, I was like, oh, honey, look at this. Like, this is so easy. Like, this is crazy easy. Not only is this easy for me now, but wouldn't this be me? like great if I had had this for all the thousands of people who sat in my makeup chair and said makeup isn't easy for me and oh shit like, 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 yeah. like the, then you get this light bulb moment of now I'm excited like now obviously yeah. not the best news in the world right to get a, a health <laughs> diagnosis like Parkinson's but like now all of a sudden it's like Maybe something brilliant and beautiful is born in this moment, now it's beyond me. did I just sort of figure out something I could never have figured out before? Like I always thought I could teach somebody how to apply makeup because I was an expert. I never knew what it felt like not to be the expert. So I found myself in this unique white space, right? What if I could start thinking through that lens? Where, that's interesting. right. and and then so at that point, I had I worked for about six months on my own creating prototypes. And then the game changers, we actually partnered up with a design team that specializes in human factors engineering and inclusive and universal design. And that was the game changer. Like at that moment, I was all in.
2: Are there any products that you feel are just not user-friendly or ergonomic at base level, but certainly for somebody who might be like the guide beauty user? Because I'm looking at them like I'm with fresh eyes and I'm like, they're all just sticks.
0: <laughs> not on the eyelash curler. You you put like someone who doesn't know makeup, they think it's a torture device. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: I don't like it. if If a makeup artist, I mean, not that I'm in a makeup chair every so often, like I'm, I'm not, but like if, not, if I'm in a makeup chair and someone's doing my makeup for like an event or something and they have an eyelash curler i'm like yo bro I, i'll do it because it's like <laughs> it's scary
1: it's it is scary we're like if you think about it like here's it, whether it's a, a lash curler or putting on false lashes or getting tweezed or like coming with liner like here's this sharp pencil i'd like you to come really close into your eye and draw with precision <sighs> don't poke yourself like and and the truth is most tools are not built with any kind of stability in mind or grip or stability. So we're coming in freehand. We approach makeup artistry like we're in, in development. A lot of ways we approach all other types of artistry. And yeah. so anytime you're freehanded, you're vulnerable. So, you know, if we can build those design elements and those human factors needs into products, then it makes it easier. So I would say most things are, are not are not designed with a level of ease and access that not only would allow people who have never been invited into the beauty space before to be here, but also make it easier for those who are already here. Because the truth is, when you are fully able-bodied, you will make do with designs that are less than because you'll figure out ways to manipulate and work around it. I mean, think about the next time you do make your makeup or you watch somebody do their makeup, we're always looking to accommodate the flaws or, or what's lacking in a in design. You know, we're always resting and grounding trying to find ways to to get our hands steady on our face because, again, not everything's easy. So if we could, as much as possible, build those things in again, you know, it it becomes a smarter design process, factoring for everybody and and you get better product, better processes.
0: Absolutely. You use the word universal design, which I see often with like capital letters. What is that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I probably put it in capital letters everywhere because I love it. I had no idea what it was until I started uh, the development process and working with our design team. But, you know, inclusive and universal design, I mean, they're sort of sisters. They're slightly different design processes. But, you know, the outcome is accessibility. But at the core, universal design says it's when you factor in for the greatest needs, when you bring... You know, Cast the widest net possible. Bring everybody to the table in your design process. Again, not only do you create products that allow access to somebody who didn't have it before, but you create better pro- processes for the whole and products for the whole. So there are lots of universally designed products out there that we use every day that we don't even realize outside of the makeup industry. So for example, like the remote control for your television. So the remote okay. control for the television, which is kind of more of a, on the inclusive side, was first created for people who had mobility issues. couldn't physically get it walk across the room to turn their tv off and on right but if you right no i
2: didn't know that but i didn't think about that i'm ashamed yeah
1: but it's mind-blowing because if you think about it like i mean i was laughing with my brother because when we were kids we didn't have remote controls for our television and now if you gave me a TV without a remote control I don't even know how to turn the thing on like I don't even know where the button is like it just we, it's become expected it's so much easier for all of us but as kids yeah. we used to like we used to take turns so we had to change the channel or turn the volume up in town and then eventually we got <laughs> so lazy like we'd grab like rocks and like balls and try to throw it against the TV to see if we could <laughs> hit the button and like that's how I mean it was only like two feet away from us but that's how lazy we were but like now we're like oh this is awesome like if, if somebody said get up and turn the TV off and on you'd be like oh, screw yourself. I don't have to click, click, but nope, you don't bother always making those changes until you sort of seek out exclusion, solve for it. And when you do that, it becomes more, it's just brilliant. It's like, oh, great. This is the right thing to do. Shouldn't we all be able to use one product the same way, but just made everybody's life better. And there's so many products out there that we just don't even realize are designed through that lens. I'd like our, you know, I'd like the makeup industry to start doing the same.
0: Do you think most of those products do have a story of someone with a disability that they were solving for, like a remote control, like when it gets better for all of us, there was that story in the beginning. A
1: lot of times there's a lot of those, but that even happens. I mean, as a makeup artist, sort of when, when, you know, Back in the day when you, know, you would sort of fight for a larger shade range and people would say, well, you know, that's a nice thing to do, but that customer isn't there. You know who I want to buy my foundation? You know, I'm very pale, but I want to buy foundation from somebody, a company that knows how to create foundation for every skin tone, because I know the, they're going to nail it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, it just that, that becomes a better product. But, yeah, I think a lot of times it's sort of the core of inclusive and universal design is that you you want to value life experiences outside of your own factor in for them they're important they're not only important because that's how you create better more loving communities and a better world in general but from a design and business perspective that's actually how you create better products and so you won't even know to think about it you don't know that something could be better until somebody shows you why it doesn't work for them and so you know there's like like he did this great shoe and there's a one-handed zipper out there that cyclists are using that was created for a gentleman who only had one arm. And like, there's just, even the bendable straw is a story created for somebody who couldn't work with a, with a a non-bendable straw. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it's super cute. Uh, August de los Reyes is one of my sort of design. Like I just think he's a hero in the, in the inclusive and universal design space, but he has a great, does a great Ted talk And he talks about how inclusive and universal design are love stories. And he tells about the story about this uh, father who goes to the soda fountain with his little girl in San Francisco. And they go sit at the soda fountain and they order their shakes. And she gets her milkshake and it comes with this big glass, big straw, tiny girl, high counter, high stool. And she's like, yeah, I can't. I can't reach that. Like, that's not happening. I was looking at her. It's like, huh, really ruined daddy daughter day. So he went home And he took the straw and he put a um, screw inside the straw, bent it, wrapped it with dental floss, pulled the screw out, and created the first bendable straw. (laughs) With the thought that the next time he goes to the soda fountain with his daughter, she's going to be able to reach the top of her straw and drink. Right? So cute. But but such a small design element that he like he saw exclusion. He cared and loved for this person. He solved for it. And then even today, I mean, not that straws are something great to use because they're not always the most sustainable, earth-friendly products. But, you know, when you go to hospitals and patients need to take their pills in a hospital bed, bendable straw. When you're lying in your beach chair and vacation yeah. and you're too lazy and you just want to lie there with your pina colada, bendable straw, right? Like, <laughs> So <laughs> yeah. there's some, I think that's the concept about universal design is that there's this common thread that makes it better for everybody.
2: I want you to tell us more. Ooh, there's so oh, many... More so- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. let's get to oh, your right, line yeah. right.
1: oh,
0: well. trickle their way in. we might soon like everybody like yeah that's how you always put on eyeliner they didn't know before that we had pointed brushes be, that were You yeah. right could you, you know could you right. I'm look at the mascaras
2: today i'd be like oh my god that was so messed up Remember what we used to really? <laughs> just
0: disgusting you to, you know? also, tell us about some of the things that you've
1: created yeah so i mean i knew when we were starting that obviously over the years of working makeup artistry that there are certain techniques that create definition that are like probably the most important, right? So because creating definition is you know but they're more natural, those are the techniques that sort of create the most impact. you do less, but they're always harder. so it's you know eyeliner, mascara, brow those all take fine motor skills and precision and application, mm-hmm. which even surgeons don't have surgeon level level skill right hands, right like we talk about surgeon level hands and skills, but there's, there's sort of robots that do that now because everybody has at least a little shake. So what we realized is again, through this universal design process, and which took about two and a half years of development with over 200 test users. What we did is we pulled in, and I'll sort of walk you started to get there. I'll walk you through how the pull process works because it's really great. So you pull in test users across all skill sets and abilities. So we brought in professionals, makeup artists, novices, people with MS, Parkinson's, arthritis. People said, I'm pretty decent with makeup. I don't have a lot of time. People who just said, I'm just learning. Like, you name it, come into the room. And then we just said, let's watch a play. So you watch people play with traditional tools, pencils, liners, brushes, whatever. And you just watch and see where the sticking points hit. And those are your moments of gold. When you watch and see where somebody struggles, you're like, ah Now I see it, (laughs) right? Like, Mm -hmm. let's see if we can solve for it. You solve for it, you bring them back in again, and you just do it over and over and over again till as many people in that room start to find it easier, and now you know you're onto something. And what we kept seeing time and time again is people were struggling because they're coming in free-handed. They don't have any, like, when you lock your hand around a pencil, a traditional pencil or a brush, I don't know if you're, like, off. I don't, but I'm just going to use the analogy anyways. But they always say if you want a nice, fluid swing – don't have a tight grip. And it's the same with makeup artistry. Anything that's sort of a small cylinder, which as you sort of you know, you recognize- Sticks. Sticks, right? Like sticks, <laughs> they're, they're sticks. You sort of, you lock on tight and then you lose a, a great level of ease and fluidity in motion all the way up the arm. So it doesn't make it as easy to apply as it should. The minute you can open up the hand and soften the hand, you're gonna have an easier time applying. But then there's also no way to ground and steady. So if you think about eyeliner in general, there's a few forms, but let's just go with the ones that most people would say pencils are probably the easiest, right? At least yeah. tradi- traditionally. The challenge yeah. is you're never going to get the same level of precision that you might like because inherently the minute you touch your eye, you dull the tip, yeah. right? And so it's impossible to sharp, like it would take you 12 years to sharpen the tip, you know, do a little dot and dot it across your eye. It just doesn't make sense. So that's why liquid liner is so popular. You get the precision, Liquid liner is a disaster. It's really hard to do. So we thought, well, what if we could get the precision of the liquid with the ease of the pencil, but then one-up it and create a level of stability and control and application that would help guide your hand and allow you to actually to steady your hand and guide your hand so that you can drop the tool against your face before you even start applying. Because that's the other thing. If you go to apply your liner with a traditional sort of pencil or, or brush or, or liquid... Them, you kinda of, you have to start applying first. And so if you land in the wrong spot, you're screwed, right? <laughs> like you land too high, you you too low. Commit. You're, you're committed you're committed to committed to right it's terrible. Yes. and I just started too high now I was going to do a tight line we're going with a wing today right like it just you're in you're all in wherever you are are you in my bathroom are you in my bathroom <laughs> I've seen it a hundred times yeah I mean it happens to all of us and even for makeup artists most makeup artists will tell you that it's easier to apply to somebody else than to yourself you lose a great level of perception when you look in a mirror you don't it's almost impossible to, to do makeup as well on yourself as it is on somebody else but so this way with like the guide wand now you can ground steady you can find your footing you're like oh I can see exactly where I need this to drop before I even start touching my eye and then work from the right point so if, whether it's a thin line or a thick line you've got control before you start and that ends so your starting point ends you at the right finishing point I don't know if that makes sense it's probably hard to no
2: I, of- it does yes this is clearly why
1: you're an education guide oh. <laughs> You got a guide. You got a guide, hands guide, exactly. What do you
0: call your tool that you invented for eyeliner? So
1: for eyeliner, it's the guide wand. The
0: guide uh, wand.
1: The guide wand. It's an elongated handle, and you hold it. Instead of holding it sort of horizontally, you hold it vertically so your arm is closer Mm -hmm. to the base. It has resting points for your fingers. It has resting points for your cheek. It allows you – it has a soft, flexible applicator tip that has a window so that you can see, so that you're not blocking your view, it's a soft, yeah. Again, the soft, flexible applicator tip is more comfortable. It allows you to tight line. You can even get under the lash base, super easy. So, if you ever want to get that invisible liner, nothing's easier when it comes to invisible liner than the guide wand. And I normally don't toot my own horn, but I got to tell you, if I you think feel I like need that. Line, it's, it's no, brilliant. the first
0: time I watched a video, I was like, "These people look like they're having fun." Like, you know, you. of someone I using your that. the guide one because it doesn't. It didn't look painful and tortuous. It just looked like oh, natural.
1: I mean, I love. I mean, that, I, that is obviously you know at the very core and heart of it all. Like the idea that somebody would not enter the beauty space because they were intimidated or just it just didn't feel fun or joyful, it was like heartbreaking to me. So the idea that somebody could come in the space and know that they were thought of, included, and then get there and have fun while they're doing it, and a lot of this is also taking a little pressure off yourself. Anytime you do anything new, there's going to be a learning curve, right? Like it's the reason I didn't get into hair; I got into makeup. Like once you cut somebody's hair off you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> See in another six months before I can fix it. But makeup, just wash it off. Start again. Yeah, build yeah. your confidence. It we, should be we fun. We heard that
0: from a facialist recently. He was like, I had to stop doing oh, hair because you was can so really funny. screw
1: someone up. Yeah, that was during, so funny. During lockdown, I took out my mom's hair. It was not a pretty picture. She didn't talk to me for several weeks. So <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it was not good. I was like, I can figure it out. I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. St- stick to the makeup.
2: What other industries do you think could benefit from, like, the guide treatment?
1: You know, I, I, the truth is every industry and every human. That's
2: probably I, a silly, silly question. I no. mean, yeah, of course. No, no, nothing's like, we've got this. Yeah, the, the world needs to be more inclusive.
1: Yeah, no, it's not a silly question. I, I, you know, the, the thing is, is that it also takes a shift in perception, right? Because I think what has happened in our industry and most industries is this Sort of strange, and and I'll just speak to the beauty industry because it's the one I, I know the most, right? Is that like for so long people have assumed that we're it's like a, an us in that moment. We're either creating for some sort of perceived norm, who the industry has defined as the customer, or ev- which is limited and odd, or everybody else. So I'm creating for you, who I just have to determine is is everybody you know the the core and who's going to shop, and everybody mm-hmm. else will create something different, and. Universal design and this perspective says, cut it out, right? Like, let we're not designing for us and them; we're just designing for we. Just include everybody together. It makes for better product and better process. It just, it's just—it's kind of mind blowing that it's taken so long for, for us to start getting there. But I do see, you know, industries and people starting to, to see it. But we, you know, again, you know, I wasn't part of the solution for a long time myself, right? Because mm-hmm. I didn't know any better. So
2: well, it's funny you say, like beauty companies say like the customer and to every brand, the customer is probably something different. You know, just in my experience, I feel like every brand has their own like vision of who their customer, you know, their customer is and their own like idealized vision, but every brand, like there's not one brand who isn't talking about inclusivity. Yeah. What does that mean to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I am just going back to the, Customer. I mean, I certainly remember over the years being in rooms where, as a, a company, you had to define who your customer was, like down to one single human being. Her name is Emily. She drives a BMW, but it's not a—it's not the high end; it's the entry series. She's going to work in PR. She's working her way up the ladder, but right now, like, she likes to go out on Wednesday <laughs> nights with her girls and watch what, like, and and then every decision you made in life, whatever department you worked in, you're like, well, what would what Emily, Emily think? I'm like,
2: <laughs> so funny. <laughs> The fuck I've is been going like, like,
0: <laughs> Just us too. We, we know, that, right? Who's I know. I'm, I'm laughing that's
2: what, like, that's what, I'm saying. Like, they all have this very specific vision of their customer, but they all want to be inclusive. But inclusivity is, in my experience, it's very vague. It's very yeah. vague. They're very specific about the customer, but they're vague as hell with <laughs> right. inclusivity. Yeah, and not again, every I- brand. I'm being a little mean, sorry. I feel like well, I'm being no, mean. No.
1: And, the, and the truth is, I think that most people have good intentions. It's probably you know, easier because I started off, at, you know, I jumped off at this, at, this, at this stage, right? A lot of companies are, are already existing and beautiful and have done wonderful things and now trying to figure out how to, how to sort of change and figure out how to make this happen. You know, for us, inclusivity is, it, it's a design process, right? Like it is, it's a method to create accessibility. I mean, that's what inclusive design is, right? Like, inclusive and universal design. It is a a method, and at the end of the day, the outcome is is accessibility, and that's what we want. And so it just means, again, look around you. Like, in the process, actually, I'm a little all over the place, but in the process, you know, people always said, like, how did you know your customer was, like, who's your customer? I've been in the meetings too, like, tell us who your customer is. I'm like, I'm not defining a customer, I'm defining a community. I don't have to tell you who the customer is because they actually were part of our development process. I knew from day one, you always know if you hit it right because your community is building your products. It makes your life a lot happier, a lot easier than trying to create something and then convincing who you think is your target to come on board. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it takes a step back and it does take a change in thinking and it takes time and it takes money. So, I mean, it, in, in all fairness, it's a, it's a process. But I also think part of that process is a change in narrative and perspective that people have to understand. We have to close that gap and stop with the us and them development. Like it's either I'm either creating for able-bodied or I'm either creating for this sector and or I'm creating for somebody else. Like just start shifting that thought process and it'll it'll come together.
2: Did they ever? When I say they, I guess just mean like people who you've had to try to convince whether it's to like get money or retailers or whoever it is, like. Are they having trouble believing or are they questioning whether or not the customer like exists or is it like we just don't understand who this is for?
1: Yeah, I think I was I always talk about how, um, you know, for two and a half, three years of development, if you would ask me if I knew what I was doing was the right thing, I always said, hells yeah, 100 no, percent. No, no issues. And then my husband and I were on the plane flying to New York for desk sides like two weeks before COVID hit to launch the brand. Mm. And on a plane, I looked at him after all that time and I was like, what if they hate us? What if they don't like us? He was like, really Mm. now? I think we're a little late for that now, but like, all right, well, I'm having a moment. Because you do realize Mm. that change is hard for people. I Mm. I walked away excited because I knew our community had helped us build the product. I knew that the community was on board. I didn't know if the industry was going to grab on so quickly. I think the only at the initial sort of, moment that I think is understandable is I think kudos to the industry and, and I'm like so grateful that so many people stepped up and said, we're gonna tell your story, we're gonna talk about it. We wanna help, we wanna help this sort of moment grow. We want people to understand that it's available and the value of it. So I was thrilled because people were just truly kind, right? They didn't have to. But there's also a learning curve which is I think it's very easy to sort of it's easy to land in, in sort of old school thought processes, which is I think one of the first a few articles that came out was disabled market my makeup artist creates products for people with Parkinson's. And I was like, Oh, all right. Well, I'm not ashamed that I have Parkinson's. I I want people to know about it. I want to fight for it. I want to cure, mm-hmm. right? Like I did create products so that people who have Parkinson's like myself can access makeup, but Kind of missing the point, right? Like the it's point is—it's not is, inclusive <laughs> either, but, right? Yeah, it. They, yeah, see, you are meta. Uh, come on, it's better, right? And so they just—and again, they were trying to be helpful, but that's—you know—that's kind of what we've all sort of been ingrained to think for so long that it just took a moment to sort of try to get people to understand the approach. And, 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 uh, and then once they did, I think they were all on board. But you, you got to give people a minute to get there, which is the other reason that I'm like always hesitant. I never want to shame people or make people afraid to ask the questions or say the wrong thing because then nobody gets learned. So nobody gets totally.
2: Better. If you could rewrite that headline, what would what's like the perfect, what's like your dream headline? Like if it's like oh. New York Times cover of the style section, what's the headline?
1: You know, I think that the message would be somewhere along the lines of makeup artist develops Revolutionary, universally designed products that makes makeup artistry better and easier for everyone.
2: That's the name of, of this episode,
0: Jen. Let's let's write it down you, now no problem. <laughs> so we don't forget. I the whole time you were talking, I was thinking, yes, like I can see a world ten years from now where we're all like, oh, your eyeliner tool doesn't have a hole in it, so you can actually see where the liner's going. <laughs> What? Loser. Loser. Like, <laughs> yeah.
1: like, yeah. Well, that's shaming, Jess. Although that was funny. <laughs> no. no, but I think, are you're, rep.
2: You're, you're like, waking people up to, like, oh, yeah, design needs to be inclusive.
0: Or even, like, I think about the Beauty Blender as, like, a tool that, like, was probably really weird when people first saw it, like, and now it's just, like, everybody copies it and makes their own version of it. Like, you're going to have mm. copycats, Terry. I hope yeah. you know yeah. that. Yeah.
1: <gasps> yeah, I know they say, uh, what is it, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, and certainly I would love to see the industry start, you know, designing from this perspective. I'd like them not to copy my exact <laughs> to a patented tool, uh, and put my name on it as if it's theirs, but, which, you know, obviously does happen. Uh, and like, Beauty Blender, though, is a brilliant, brilliant product, right? Like, she changed the game. That it makes foundation application easier, the way that I think Temp2 and their Airbrush, uh, mm-hmm. AirPod Airbrush changed the game. Oh, yeah. That's not as easy to knock off because that's uh, probably a little little more expensive for for, uh, knockoffs to happen. But, um, you know, the other thing though that does happen in terms of knockoffs is that there's product and then there is community, right? And so I think that you're always going to have people who try to sneak their way in and and have their moment and take advantage and and not come in from the best intentions. But I think when you're... brand is built on community the right people stand by you and so I think that that keeps you as a brand growing and moving
0: yeah and they're in your corner yeah okay before we let you go even though I want to leave on your amazing headline that you just created aka the title of this podcast episode (laughs) I we have a fat mascara five for you a little speed round of questions we do with all of our guests these are special for you though so if you're up for it are you ready
1: I'm ready. I don't, nothing I do in life is very fast, but I'll give it a go. They call me a turtle or actually, they, no, I, my, spirit, my spirit animal is actually a tree sloth. So, so I don't know, but I'll work. I'll do my best. <gasps> I'm with you.
0: <laughs> okay. Take your time. What's the first beauty product you remember buying?
1: <sighs> first beauty product. That's challenging because I basically used to take, you know how you get palettes from wrote shadow quads. I used to take the ones that color that my mother didn't use from every palette and create my own. And I started working behind the counter because I couldn't afford it. So I can tell you in the nineties, I bought a lot of Stila lip glaze and a lot of Chanel nail polish and lipstick.
0: Yes. Okay. What's the last beauty product you bought? Be very honest.
1: Oh, I just bought about 500 false lashes.
0: (laughs) Which brand?
1: (laughs) It was a hodgepodge. A lot of them were from Kiss.
0: Oh, okay what's the makeup look or beauty trend that you just can't get into that you see out there. And you're like, not for me. Oh, you're smiling. She has an answer already and you better say what just came to mind. I'm going to
1: say it only because I get asked to write a lot about trends as they come up and my thoughts behind them. And usually I can find a reason or a purpose for all of them, but I have a real hard time getting behind the end of last year when everybody was doing the um, lube as face primer (laughs) <laughs> not, not okay. I can't. I can't find one reason to tell somebody to do it. I just, I, I can't. I'm, I'm out on that.
0: Okay. I, I hear you. What's the makeup looker trend that will always be in style for you?
1: For me, I mean, fresh, clean, pretty is always in style. And, and then a classic red lip is always going to be in style.
0: Okay. And how do you relax at the end of the day?
1: Aww. I meet my husband out on the patio with our dog, and uh, we grab a cocktail, and we just look at the lake and chit-chat about our day. Okay.
0: What are we drinking? What's the cocktail?
1: I, we are, well, I say martinis, but I think they're really actually Gibson's because we use cocktail onions instead of olives, <gasps> but uh, we're, we, call it teen, we call it teeny time, it's, and it, but that's why it can only be one, because if you have two, then teeny time turns into what we call meanie time, so you got to keep it.
0: Keep it down Teeny time, the dog of, time. of the lake, and your pseudo martini.
1: exactly?
0: Yeah, no, it's great. This has been honestly super eye-opening for me. I just, yeah, this was awesome. I kind of rethinking like how a lot of things are designed in my life. And I'm like, yeah, why do we make do with that? Fix it, <laughs> Terry. F- f- fix <laughs> slash other people. I'm not gonna put it all in you. That's the other thing we do, isn't it? Like <laughs> we're gonna make the person who has the issue solve the problem, also. Like, who am I? no all right I'm, but Jen, that that's really, so it's, true it's it's a hundred percent true it's a hundred percent you fix it yeah that's, that's terrible <laughs> te- teach me so, about it like <laughs> i'm in
2: I'm all it's in. so messed it's, up
1: no no not at all I, I love it i love it i'm all i'm all in i mean obviously not all in on all of it but i'm all in on most of it at least in the beauty industry i'm not i'm not done until that's know, where we need
0: you that's where we need you uh, yeah thank you so much for coming on fat mascara we hope you enjoyed the show. It's your reviews and feedback that help us make the podcast even better. Head over to iTunes to rate and review us or email your thoughts to infofatmascara.com.
2: We also want to answer your beauty questions and hear what products you love. To share a Razor One product review or to ask a beauty
0: question, email us at infofatmascara. If you send it as a voice memo file, we can even share your voice on the podcast. You can also do that by leaving us a voice message. Our phone number in the United States is 646-481-8182. Thanks so much for listening. and it led to a 2.9 increase in skin smoothness. I also like that they're easy to swallow. The capsules sort of taste like vanilla. They're not all weird and fishy like some other supplements. Plus, Ritual is a certified B Corp